Are there few that be saved is the question of today. Now, this question belongs to a group of three questions which have to do with the matter of salvation. One of them is in Matthew 19.25, where the disciples ask, Who then can be saved? Another is in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, 31. What must I do to be saved? And here in Luke 13, verse 23, are there few that be saved? Why are these questions coming forth? Do these questions imply that the majority of people on earth will not inherit the kingdom of God and find everlasting life? As we examine this entire subject, it seems to be true that the great majority of people on earth seem to have little time for God or the things of God. Not only here in America, but in other parts of the world. If you were in Europe today and would go into cathedrals that are very large and very ornate, in the main you would find them empty. I was in such a cathedral in one European city, very impressed with its architecture, longing like mad to get into that pulpit and preach. When I asked the person showing us the building how many worshipers they had, and rather embarrassingly was told about a hundred. And it was a massive structure. And that is not uncommon throughout the world, especially where affluence and materialism has become so prominent in recent years. It would be true in much of Asia as well as in Europe. Are there few that be saved? It is only the few who love him and live for him in a way that is well-pleasing in his sight. I believe that's the essence of these three questions, and particularly the one that was asked of Jesus in our text this morning. Few love him and live for him in a way that is well-pleasing to him. It is a challenge to all of us, saved and unsaved alike. Now notice that Jesus said, many shall not be able. One thing he implies here is that though many hear the message, many will not be able. I want to quickly say that it is not God's fault that many will not be able. It is man's fault. It is man's problem, not God's problem. Romans chapter 1 is a wonderful passage to illustrate this fact. As Paul writes to these Roman believers, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. But in verse 18 he says, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, now notice, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What Paul is pointing out here is a fact. Men hear the truth, men know what the truth is, but they suppress the truth. They put it under the rug. They discount it. They push it away. They suppress it. And when they do that, then all kinds of excuses, all kinds of reasoning and rationalism comes to their minds. But God, through Paul, goes on in this passage to say, the downward trend leads them to their own destruction. They change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Notice now the regression. They change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. You see, we're not on an upward climb We're on a downward slide. We are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness until the question is asked of Jesus, are there few that be saved? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7 of Matthew, enter in at the straight gate. Matthew 22, 14 For many are called, but few are chosen. 1 Peter 3.20 There were eight souls saved by water. Speaking of the flood in Noah's day, only eight out of the entire populace of the world in that time were saved. Only eight found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you're a Bible student, you may have a problem because you've read Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation 7, verse number 9, you read, A great multitude, which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. How do you relate this great multitude of revelation, which is a scene in heaven, a scene of things to come, with the question, are there few that be saved? Are there few that find the Lord? What must I do to be saved? And who then can be saved? How do you equate that with these questions of the New Testament? I can only answer in a five-point outline that I know what the Bible does say. Number one, all may be saved. That I know. The Bible is clear on that subject. All may be saved. There is none righteous, no, not one, but all may be saved. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Whosoever will may come. Jesus' death made salvation available to all men. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever believeth. We read Romans 1.16, it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
Romans 10, 13, For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, God has made his salvation available to all men. But there are some men who do not want to accept that way, to accept that plan. They want to do it themselves. They want to work their own plan of salvation. They're going to get better and better. But as I pointed out from Romans, it is exactly the opposite. We are not better. We are worse than we have ever been. We are farther down the road than we have ever been. We are closer to hell than we have ever been as a nation and as a people of the earth because we have given ourselves to the lusts of the flesh and the pride of life and the lust of the eye. And those are the things that rob us of the salvation that Jesus Christ offered to every one of us. And according to Romans 1, we will be without excuse when we stand before God. God will never let anybody go out of this world without appealing to that soul to receive the grace of God as it is revealed in Jesus Christ. There is no excuse. All may be saved is the teaching of the Word of God. The second thing I know is that all will not be saved. I can say that emphatically. The Bible does not teach the doctrine of universalism. What is the doctrine of universalism? It is simply that ultimately all men will be saved. That is not true. That's a misnomer. That is a lie from the pit itself. Some teach that the sinner and the saint will be gathered into God's kingdom on the premise that a God of love will not condemn anyone to hell. That is a lie. The saint and the sinner are as different as sheep and goats. Jesus said that. He will separate the sheep from the goats. Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares. What was he talking about? He's talking about one group who will not believe and another group who will believe. It is as obvious as the nose on your face. Look at the text we've read today. Not just once, but more than once. Jesus talks about the fact that not all will be saved. In verse 24, I say to you, some will seek to enter and will not be able. Look at verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. You see, the, the, the Lord Jesus himself said not all will be saved. They will be standing out there knocking, but I will say, I don't know you. He will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Jesus himself declares not all will be saved. And when you come to verse 28, there's one word that helps us here to understand. It's the word weeping. There will be weeping. Why will they be weeping? Because they had been instructed in the way. They had been told the way. He taught in their streets. But they put off salvation. They lived according to their own plan according to their own desires, and now outside the door, it says they are weeping, wanting to get in. But the door was shut, just as it was for Noah when he went into the ark. Friends, there is no question but that all will not be saved. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter in. 
Those are sobering words. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Not all will be saved. Consider the three unanswered questions of the New Testament. Mark 8.36, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Jesus never answered that question. He didn't have to, because you can answer it. What will it profit a man if you gain everything, houses and lands and all the rest, but lose your soul? What a foolish decision. The other unanswered question I preached on in the first message of this series, Hebrews 2.3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The answer is obvious. You won't escape. There is no escape. The door is shut. The third is in 1 Peter 4, 17. What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? It's just logic that says they're not going to appear in the presence of Jesus. They're going to be separated from Jesus, just as the text we have read declares from the lips of Jesus himself. They're going to be on the outside weeping and gnashing their teeth, wanting to get in, but unable, because all will not be saved. They have closed the door on the grace and the mercy of God. I thank God that all may be saved, but I never enter this pulpit without the solemn reminder that not all will be saved. And not all who hear me preach will be saved because they, they choose to close the door and refuse the grace that God offers. Sad indeed. I was trying to get back here to preach some time ago from the East Coast. I was sitting in a DC-10 on the runway in Baltimore. Had to make a connection in Chicago by United to get here on Saturday night to fulfill my obligation and my joy to you after ministering back there. I sat in my seat near one of those islands in the middle of this huge plain and watched a gentleman working on a coffee pot. We sat, I noticed it was time to take off and nothing was happening. I waited a few more minutes and nothing was happening and finally the pilot said we have some malfunction on board and it's being worked on and we will be taking off very soon. That very soon turned out to be 60 minutes later. And what was malfunctioning was that dumb coffee pot. As soon as that fellow left the plane, the door shut, we pulled back and we were on our way. I got into Chicago and I knew I was in trouble. I ran like fury down that corridor pulling my suitcase. I ran up to this counter, United Lady behind the counter. I said, ma'am, is this plane still available? She said, no, it's just leaving. I looked out the window and it was just pulling away. It was just pulling back at that very moment. I said, can't you get it back? She said, no, sir, it's impossible. I wanted to say, don't you know who I am? <laughs> I even have a television program. My wife's name is Mary Ann. My son is Rick. You ought to see my grandkids. I even had a card with United on the top of it, which is a preferred flyer's card because I fly a lot. But that wouldn't help me either because the door was shut. 
I mean, it was absolutely closed, and there wasn't anything I could do to get that United plane back to that ramp for me to get on. Oh, what trouble it caused me, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I had to fly into San Francisco. I had to rent a car and drive all the way back, turn the car in before I got to my bed in order to get a little rest to get here to preach. Such difficulty that caused just because of a dumb coffee pot that had to be repaired in their minds before that plane in Baltimore could take off. What difficulty! But you know what? As I looked out that window and just with this helpless feeling saw that plane pull away from that ramp, I thought, oh, God, there's a message here for me. It's like Jesus said, they will want to get in, but the door will be shut, and there they will stand weeping and gnashing their teeth because they waited too long. They got involved in coffee pots. They got involved in business. They got involved in games. And when it was too late, they ran with all their might to get in, but the door was shut. And I pray this morning that what I have just said to you will have the impact on you that it had on me as I saw that plane pull away and I had to make other arrangements. The only problem is with the story, the ending doesn't fit because you can't make any other arrangements. There are none to make. There is only one way, only one Savior, and only one gate. And when it's shut, it's shut. All may be saved, but not all will be saved. Number three, some will be saved whom we did not expect to be saved. Genesis 18.25 has an interesting account of Abraham standing before the Lord for Sodom, and the Bible says, that be, that be far from thee to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And Abraham somehow had an insight into the character of God. He knew that God would be gracious if he had an opportunity to be gracious. The songwriter wrote, there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice which is more than liberty. For the love of God is broader than the measures of man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. It's true. It's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's the way God is. And I have a feeling that when we stand before the Lord, we're going to be surprised at some of those we see there. In verse 30, he said, There are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. If you want to understand that real easy, just put the word now and then in there. So it would read like this. There are last now which shall be first then, and there are first now which shall be last then. That's the way it makes sense. You look around and say, wow, those people are lucky. They have it made. They're first now. But friend, notice what Jesus said. They'll be last then. A tent or a cottage why should I care? They're building a mansion for me over there. That's the idea. What about the woman at the well? She shouldn't have been included. Why did Jesus include her? She had six men in her life. 
Surely she shouldn't be in heaven where I am, and I've only had one wife. But Jesus said, if you drink of the water that I offer, you'll never thirst. And she drank, and she's going to be in heaven. Boy, won't some of those folk be surprised in Samaria? What about Zacchaeus, the little Jew in Luke 19, who robbed the people, cheated the people, lied to the people? Jesus said, I'm going to go to your house today. And boy, the eyebrows went up. Jesus was saying, listen, I'll decide who's going to be in my kingdom. Some surprises. The thief on the cross, he was both a thief and he was on a cross. But Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. How do you figure? The publican and the Pharisee. The one who was supposed to be the righteous one is put down. The one who wasn't was lifted up and said, this man will go away justified. What about Saul of Tarsus? If you want a good example of somebody who didn't deserve it. I mean, he was a persecutor of the church. Even when Ananias heard that Saul had been saved, he couldn't believe it. He said, Lord, don't you know who that is? He wanted to help the Lord out as though the Lord didn't know. Well, Ananias was just shocked. Just as many will be on that day. Some will be saved whom we did not expect to be saved. We'll get some real surprises in heaven. Paul never got over this thing. He said that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He just could never get over the wonder of that whole thing. So don't forget, huh? It's a narrow gate. Some will be saved whom we did not expect to be saved. I've analyzed this very carefully, and I've looked at this account very, very carefully, and I've looked at the words of Jesus very, very carefully, and I've read them over and over again. What was he saying? Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And then it came to me. It came into focus so very close and real to me. It's like an athlete who will go on a proper diet and go into proper exercise in order to buffet his body and get himself into shape. How many will do it? Only a few. How many will go on the proper diet? How many will do the proper exercise? One of the ladies of this church was saying to me this week, every night when she goes to bed, she says, I'm going to get up at 5.30 and I'm going to do my exercises. I'm going to run. When 5.30 comes around, she has absolutely no desire for that whatsoever and most of the time does not do it. Well, how many of us relate to that? Because there are only a few that do it. How many enter the marathon? Only a few. Only a few are prepared for it. Then I thought of musicians. How many can dazzle you with their talent and ability? How many violinists can really put you on your ear rather than put you on your back? Only a few will practice until their fingers bleed in order to master that instrument and bring it under their subjection. How many businessmen will discipline themselves with the integrity of the Bible until they can say, this is not my business, but God's business. Only a few. How many in education will say, I'm going to study, I'm going to apply myself according to God's Word. Study to show yourself approved unto God so that I can rise in the area of my expertise and be at the top of the list of glory. Only a few. 
who are willing to truly discipline themselves to do it? How many preachers are willing to discipline themselves to study and to prayer in order that they can build churches and minister to people and bring them into the kingdom of God? They ask me often, how do you minister? How do you take care of this flock? How do you prepare the people? How do you build a church? I always have one answer, work! And they disappear. It doesn't come naturally. You have to apply yourself. Every ounce of your being, every moment of your day. Then I understood what Jesus was saying. Few that make it. And as I speak to this crowd this morning, I realize that even in this audience, it could apply. But seated here today are only a few that are really disciplined in the things of God. Why isn't this building full on Sunday nights when we have two big crowds on Sunday morning which would overflow it every Sunday night? We couldn't even get everybody in. I'd like to try that sometime. Where are you? I know where you are. It breaks my heart. Where are you on Wednesday night when we fill up maybe this section over to here? I'm not wanting to be harsh. I am teaching you something right out of the lips of Jesus that we need to get a hold of. This is not a game. This is life and death, folks. This is heaven and hell. This is readiness and unreadiness. When he said to those who said, Lord, Lord, depart from me, I don't know you. What are we to expect? Am I to get up and say, oh, you're so wonderful? Everybody here, I'm sure, is ready. I can't say that. Where is the tithe that belongs to the Lord? You robbed God. Are you ready? I don't think so. If you're robbing God, is he going to let a thief into his kingdom? That's harsh. But it's truth. Is he going to let people into the kingdom who just gave him a nod on Sunday morning once in a while and they went on their way to do anything they wanted to do the rest of the time? No time for prayer. No time for the Bible. No time for a witness for Jesus Christ. No effort ever to bring somebody else into the kingdom of God. Are those people ready? According to this, I don't think so. Now maybe they will be saved such as by fire, like Lot's family. But I wouldn't want to go out that way because even one of them, his own wife, turned around because she had great things down there in that valley that she couldn't part with and she was turned into a pillar of salt. We've got to excel. This is not a part-time job. We've got to excel in our spiritual life. Jesus Christ wants to be Lord of all. Number four, some will not be saved who expected to be saved. That pity, pitiable group is described in verses 25 through 27. They go to church. They've been confirmed, baptized, say their prayers at night once in a while, sing in the choir maybe, take communion. Titus 3, 5 says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. 
not by going through rigmarole. 2 Timothy 3.5 gives us some of the events that will be taking place at the end time when Jesus returns, and one of those is they will have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. That's what I'm talking about. Some will not be saved or expected to be. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Sad, isn't it, that we would have to hear these kinds of words from Jesus who did so much that we might have so much. But we put him at the bottom of the list. We trample under our feet the grace and the mercy of God and do pretty well what we want, but here is the challenge. Are there few that be saved? Narrow is the great gate, straight is the way that leads to life eternal, and few there be that find it. Few that will discipline themselves to the things of the soul. All of this leads to one last proposition. No one will be saved except in God's way. He is the only Savior. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the present Savior. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He's a complete Savior according to Hebrews 7, 25. He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. He will save you, Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a hymn in our book. I think it's page 417. We sing it a lot. It's titled, Just As I Am. You ever heard the story behind that hymn? Up on the left-hand corner, you see the name Charlotte Elliott. This hymn goes back to the year 1836, when Charlotte Elliott was a young lady preparing her wardrobe for the big ball in her town, wanting to go out on the town and live it up, even though she was in the church. She was going to get some of the material for the garment that she planned to wear for that big occasion when she met her pastor on the street. And when learning where she was going and what her errand was, he cautioned her, told Charlotte Elliott that she needed to give her life fully to Jesus Christ, that she was not to be involved in all these things of the world, the flair, the glitter, all the glory of this world. And his words hung in her heart heavily, even though she went on her way and went to the ball and had a night of revelry at the ball. But when she got home and put her head on her pillow, she could not rest. She was troubled by what her minister had said to her, and for three days and three nights she wrestled with this thing that had been told her, you must give Jesus your whole life. You cannot be serving God and trying to serve the world at the same time. And in her agony of conscience and spirit, she went back to her pastor and said, Sir, what must I do to get this off of my conscience? I need to know Jesus. And he said, Charlotte, all you have to do is come to him and ask him to forgive you, be your savior. But she argued with him. 
She said, oh, don't you know what I've done? Don't you know the pattern of my life? How could he ever accept me? And her minister said to Charlotte, Charlotte, that's the only way he will accept you, just as you are. She found her way to her knees by her bed, and she cried out to God for his forgiveness. And suddenly from her lips began pouring forth the words of our hymn, that we use so often just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me just as I am, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Just as I am, I come. Suddenly the load fell from her bosom. She knew she had gotten through. She knew that her sins were forgiven. She knew that the grace of God had met her. And into the hymn books of the world went one of the greatest songs that have ever been written. Just as I am. I got. Sir, that's the only way he'll take you. Ma'am, the only way he wants you. Young person, it's the only way he'll accept you. Just as you are. He'll take care of the cleaning up, if you're willing. He'll take care of the washing and the regeneration and the new habits. He'll take care of the new friends and all the rest. If you'll just find the meaning of that great hymn, that Charlotte Elliott found so real. Just as I am, I come. Would you bow your heads with me, please? In reverence to God and in respect of every worshiper, I ask that nobody leave now until we finish the meeting. We want to do business with God in these last few moments of our time together. Before I pray and with our heads bowed, how many of you would lift up a hand and say, Pastor Cole, I need Jesus. I need his forgiveness. I need his cleansing. He died for me. I need to come to him for my sins to be forgiven. And I want to do it today just as I am. I don't fully understand how he can save me, but I'm willing to let him. Over to my left, thank you, thank you. Hold your hand up till I see it. Then you may put it down. Lift them up. Yes, sir, back here. Thank you so much over here. God bless you over there. Hold them till I see the hand. Then you may put it down. Another to my left. Back here too. In this section and in the middle section. Thank you. God bless you. How many more? Hold it there for just a few seconds. Give me an opportunity to see it. Thank you, ma'am. Right down here. God bless you. How many more? Yes, over to my right. God bless you over there. How about up in the balcony area? Lift your hand if you need Jesus. I want to pray for you today. He's waiting.